All right, folks, we are in session four. We're on page 25. This is our last one of this series. If you go to the very last page of your book, <clears throat> you'll see our remaining schedule. So in the fall, September, we're going to hit the Holy Spirit in the church. Then we're going to hit salvation in October, first week of November. Then we're going to do a big all-night one. Well, not the whole night, <laughs> but several hours talking through the end times. That will be an interesting one. Um, I've already had the Holy Spirit and Church and Salvation ones done. I'm super excited about them. The end times, I think we have to study all summer to make sure I'm ready to, to have that one. So I get a couple more months of studying and prepping for that one, which will be good. Um, <clears throat> oh, you're fine. So tonight we're in our last one in Jesus the Messiah. So let's pray and let's jump into it. Father, I thank you so much that you are here with us. Um, Jesus, I pray that the response and the outcome of this is that we fall more in love with you, that we appreciate your cross all the more. We appreciate what you've done for us and that what you're doing in us and through us is something that makes us rejoice, makes us excited, changes who we are and the way we perceive and understand and react to you. May we fall more in love with you and joyfully obey you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so page 25, we're going to focus on what I would argue is like the the central piece to the christian faith like if we don't get this if this isn't true everything else falls apart this concept of concept of substitutionary atonement or substitutionary propitiation which is what we're going to look through for the first two pages if this isn't true if we don't get this nothing else really makes sense um <clears throat> so let's let's jump in and, and talk about it you can go ahead and close that it sounds like the band's already warming up so, first point is that Jesus is our substitute. The work of Christ is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is our foundation. It is our path. It is our destination. When we say that, the work of Christ isn't just something. The cross isn't just something that we heard about, accepted and believed, and just moved on. That's not the way it works. The gospel, the work of Christ, is something that continues to affect you and me every single day. It affects my past. But the fact that I believe and trust him also affects the next step down the path. Like it affects my today. It affects my tomorrow. It affects my eternity. So he who began a good work in you is faithfully completing that good work every single day. He saved you not just to be done with you so that at one point you get to see him in heaven, but to walk with you and to be with you and to transform you every step of the way. So the cross isn't just something that we say thank you look in another direction and move forward is ever in front of us is ever a part of our days ever a part of our thoughts our feelings our attitudes and our actions um, the cross saves us it transforms us and one day the work of christ fully restores us into an eternal fully realized relationship with jesus that day is truly coming so it is true to say that contrary to some evangelicalism critics the cross has never exhausted evangelical spirituality, but it has ongoingly defined its center. We've never had too many books written on the cross. Okay, There's never been too many words spoken about the cross. It hasn't been preached about too many times. We haven't sung about it too many times. We haven't taken communion too many times. Like It's something that never gets boring. It should never feel like routine. Like. Every time you come, whether it's on a Sunday morning or it's in your car, 
and a song plays and it sings about what Christ did for you on the cross, Lord willing, that time is a little deeper and more meaningful to you than the time before. Every time you take communion, Lord willing, it's a little bit more powerful in your life than the time before. If you show up to church and you hear we're doing communion and your first thought is, oh, I wish I would have stayed home, then you're not quite getting this, okay? Like this is the centerpiece. It doesn't get better than this, okay? It's, it's the main course, okay? So there's not something better afterwards. This is as good as it gets. Um, on the cross, Jesus had to stand in our place. In the divine courtroom, every person sits in the guilty seat. No one is in a position to help one another. Each is equally helpless, guilty, and destined for punishment in the likeness of their father, Adam. So if we're in a courtroom and the judge is sitting there at his bench, he is the one in this situation who has been offended. The father, God himself, is the one who's been, been offended. He's the offended party. You and I are the guilty party. You and I sit in a seat of guilt. Okay, we're the ones who are about to receive the judgment from the one who's been offended. There is nothing that I can do to help you out in that situation. There's nothing you can do to help me out or anyone else out because you're also in the guilty seat. So all of us are stuck in the same place. Very useless, very unhelpful in this situation. We need someone else, we need something else to step into our place or else we have no hope. Only Jesus could offer hope. Only Jesus could stand in our place as our substitute, okay? So what made Jesus be able to stand in our place? Now we've been talking about some of these things, but here's where it kind of lands in terms of the importance. Like if he wasn't truly human, because we've studied the humanity of Christ, if he wasn't truly human, he wouldn't really represent us in that courtroom. He wouldn't represent us on the cross. But Jesus was truly human. He was born of a woman. He shared in our nature. He could truly represent the human race. In 1 Corinthians 15, near the end, verses 45, 46, 48, 49, uh, it talks about the fact that Jesus is like the second Adam, the last Adam. So the first Adam came and represented the race. How'd he do? Not great, right? Not great. So because of doing not so great, Everyone who's been born since Adam has been born with a sinful nature, has been born in a fallen state. They've been born already in a broken relationship with God. But Jesus now comes as a new head of the race, a new second Adam. And in Christ, he lives a life that is sinless. He's born without a sinful nature, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, and throughout his life, he lives without sinning. We had the conversation, could Jesus have sinned? And we kind of debated that. It was a good conversation. But at the end of the day, he didn't sin. So whether he could have or would have or couldn't have, he didn't. Because he didn't, he can stand in our place. He is not in the guilty seat. He stands in a whole other place with no guilt and can represent everyone who's presently sitting in the guilty seat. Jesus is God and therefore able to bear the full weight of the punishment of the Father against our sins. So the full weight of God's wrath and anger against your sin and mine has to go somewhere. It just doesn't disappear, it goes somewhere. And all of it lands on Jesus. Now, Jesus had to have the same level of power, 
had to have the same nature as the Father, or else when God did that, the Father did that, I mean, he would have melted, imploded, exploded, I don't know, but like he wouldn't have been able to handle it. So Jesus had to be of the same nature as the Father to bear the wrath and the weight of the Father's punishment that was due to us. So he needed to be God. He had to be God. If he wasn't human, it's a fail. It can't represent us. If he's not God, he can't finish the work that was given to him. Both are necessary. So being God, his death, death is of infinite worth, bearing the sins of all who would come to him. And Jesus freely chose to stand in our place. He wasn't obligated. He wasn't forced. But out of love, Romans 5.18, but God demonstrates his love that while you and I were still living in rebellion to him, while you and I were still sinning, just because we prefer it over following him, Christ still died on the cross for you. Even when you and I were sitting in that guilty seat and enjoying it and wanting to sit there, Christ still said, I will stand in your place. I will take your punishment for you. It's amazing. The quote at the bottom says this. R.C. Ryle comments, Without the substitutionary atonement, your religion in heaven is without a son. It's an arch without a keystone. It's a compass without a needle. It's a clock without a spring or weights. It's a lamp without oil. It's a smartphone without an iOS system. It would just be, I mean, if you don't have your iOS system, it's like a brick, right? It does nothing for you. So without the substitutionary atonement, without Jesus being in our place, nothing else matters. There is no Christian life to enjoy. Um, Mike John, at our, who's, who heads our elder board, at our last members meeting mentioned that we are trying to update and make our membership statement more robust. Presently in the existing statement, the concept of substitution isn't even in it. So that's one of the reasons why we felt like we need to update it. Like it's not in there. And we would say it's like one of the absolute foundation pieces of doctrine. So we're working on putting it in there. Okay. Um, we had 11 words about Jesus, 11 words about Jesus in our doctrinal statement. Uh, we're up to a page and a half, small print about Jesus. We're making much of Jesus. We're making much of the work of Jesus because he did all these things. Um, <clears throat> so I'm super excited about that. Okay. So not only did he stand in our place, he accomplished something while he stood in our place. He was our atoning propitiation. Those are big words. Um, well, we just don't talk about these words very much, but they have rich meaning. Like you will enjoy these words once they make sense to you. He was our atoning propitiation, which means Jesus bears God's wrath against our sin. So it's our sin, but Jesus bears and takes on the wrath of God the Father. Jesus makes an atonement or an appeasement or he satisfies God's wrath against our sin. So, bless you. <laughs> You're right, Bill. You've already been blessed. Okay. It's okay to have a little extra every once in a while. So, <clears throat> so on the board here, I have the Father at the top. Here's the work of Christ. Here's the world. Us. Okay. What we're not talking about today is how the cross is applied directly to us. 
we have a study coming up in the fall on salvation. There we're going to talk about how we've been made righteous. We're alive in Christ. We're justified. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. Like all those cool words we're going to hit in the fall. But today, the conversation that we're having is, what work did Jesus accomplish on our behalf with the Father? This is the conversation right now. So the Father poured wrath onto the Son, and because of that, the Son satisfied the Father. So he satisfied him. The whole concept of propitiation is that Christ satisfied God's wrath. All right, I've shared this illustration before, so sorry if you've heard it before, but a good way of like visualizing propitiation is a son and a father are out in a field. The field is bone dry, cornfield, bone dry, and they're just walking through the field. I mean, they're out in the middle of it. Like there is, as far as they can see, dried up corn. Behind them, there's a breeze that's kind of blowing this direction, like it's moving their hair. They can feel it. It's a strong breeze. All of a sudden, they smell smoke. They look back, and they can just see billowing smoke behind them in the cornfield. The cornfield is straight up on fire all the way across. The father realizes there is no way that they're going to be able to run in any direction and escape this fire. So what he does is he pops out a match, lights it, tosses it in front of him, and the fire lights and burns the ground in front of him. So as the fire approaches, he and his son step onto the burnt ground and the fire goes around them and they're not consumed. What Jesus is for us, he's the burnt ground. Okay, he's the burnt ground. Does that make sense? It's already been dealt with, it's already been handled. There's nothing left to punish because it's all landed on him. So we stand in what he's accomplished and God's wrath just goes right around us. We're not consumed by it. That's like an idea, an image of propitiation. The next point there says, okay, and this is a hard quote, probably shouldn't put it in here. So just listen to it and then I'll explain it. The atonement is objective. This means that the atonement makes its primary impression on the person to whom it's made. If a man does wrong and renders satisfaction, this satisfaction is intended to influence the person wronged and not the offending party. Meaning the satisfaction achieved through the atonement is directed towards God, not us. So when we say substitutionary atonement or we say propitiation, it's not about this. It's about this. This is the offended party and this is the one who's standing in our place even though the guilty party's over here. So in the courtroom, there's the guilty seat, there's the judge and the offended party, and he steps up and steps between us and him and bears the punishment. Didn't need to, wasn't obligated to, but he does. So it is God's wrath that is atoned or satisfied. It's not yours, it's not mine, like it has nothing to do with you and I having anger or wrath towards something. It is God the Father's wrath that is satisfied, that is atoned. God is the one who must be satisfied or else nothing, none of this works. Next point, God's wrath will be satisfied. There is no sin that's ever been committed that will not eventually be punished and dealt with. If God's holy standard is going to exist through eternity, every sin will be dealt with, either through the personal atonement 
of the offending party, in other words, either by the wrath going this way or by the wrath going this way. In one form or another, God's wrath will be satisfied. So it's either through the offending party through an eternal punishment or through, check out this word, through a vicarious atonement. A vicarious atonement. So what does vicarious mean? <clears throat> a vicarious atonement is offered by the offending party. Vicarious atonement represents the highest form of mercy. So the offended party, the father, he's the one who offers the solution. He's the offended one. And those who are guilty don't even care that he's offended. Like the Bible is really clear. We're not concerned. When we are separated from God, we're enjoying our life of sin. Like we're totally fine with it. We're good. But even though we're not asking for help, the Father gives us his Son. That's why it's called a vicarious atonement. The atonement is offered by the offended party. He offers Jesus. This is the greatest form of mercy ever seen anywhere. Like there's no story that's ever been written that beats this. Okay? Lots of stories have shadows and echoes of this, but this is the greatest act of mercy that there has ever been. The Father offers His Son a vicarious atonement given by the offended party to help out the guilty party. It, it really is crazy. Like it makes no sense. You would never do this. I would never do this. But God loves us that much. God is of infinite worth and is eternally offended by sin. It, that's big. Like what that just said was kind of big. God is of infinite worth and is eternally offended by sin. And his wrath and punishment against each sin must reflect his infinite worth. So, I mean, it's not unusual to hear this even within Christian circles, it seems unfair that God would punish someone eternally for something. Why would he do that? Isn't he also loving? His wrath and punishment against each sin must reflect his infinite worth. So if he's of infinite worth, it makes sense that the punishment for offending someone of infinite worth is an infinite punishment, which looks like eternal punishment. Like, I know it's, spirit, it's not normal math, it's like spiritual math, but like the scales seem to fit that, right? The logic of that? It doesn't mean that I want that. I'm not teaching because I want that to be true, but like that seems to be the way God communicates that. His wrath is infinite in nature, and therefore his punishment must be eternal in nature. So think through this with me. As finite beings, the passing of time causes the weight of the ways you and I have been wronged to others to slowly fade. Like you've been wronged in many ways, but over enough time you just tend to forget it. The sting of how you've been wronged just kind of goes away. So you maybe don't even verbally say I forgive you or I verbally or I intentionally think, you know what, I'm not, I'm okay with that person now. But like it just starts to go away, like just by virtue of time. Here's time. You and I live inside of time. Like we've talked about before, God created time. He's not bound by it. God lives outside of time. Like he created it. It'd be like 
you creating a birdhouse and then you get stuck and trapped inside the birdhouse. Like that doesn't happen. Like you created the birdhouse, like you're in control of the birdhouse. God created time. He's in control of time. So for him, anything and everything that has ever happened or ever will happen is as though it's present before him at all times. Why can God speak with confidence about the very details and the minutia of the future? It's because his presence, we talk about his presence filling everything, space, matter, and time. His presence fills all of that. So for him, when I sin against my God, it's as present before him the moment that I committed it as it is 10,000 years from now or 10,000 years before I committed it. Like, he is above time. So for you and I, we just start to forget and it just kind of wears off. God doesn't forget it. It doesn't just wear off. Like it's, he always remembers it. He always feels the sting of it. The sting of it does not go away. So he must be satisfied. His wrath and his anger towards it must be handled, dealt with. And he, he does. Only because Jesus is God could he bear the infinite weight of the punishment and wrath of the Father. So only because he's God does this actually work. All right, so <laughs> I'm nervous about putting this next question on camera. So how much wrath did Jesus bear? Is there a limited amount of wrath that he bore? Is there an unlimited amount of wrath that he bore? Like when the father poured his wrath out on Jesus, the question I'm asking is how much? How much wrath did he pour on him? What do you think? You said he will or no, won't? I'm saying we, the only way to, to do that is every sin would have to be quantified. I mean, from, from the very first sin to the very last sin for everybody who's ever lived. Okay, so the answer there is that it would have to be quantified, like all sin, and then what you're suggesting is that's how much wrath there would be? <laughs> okay, so Carol hinted at it, but is afraid to actually stand on it. Any other thoughts? Logically, you would think, since he knows all from past, present, and future, he knows exactly how many, if you want to put numbers, on sin that had, had been committed at the time of the crucifixion, and how many would be committed after the crucifixion. He would know how many would accept the cross, the propitiation of our sin. Okay. Logically, you would think that the wrath was poured out on the cross was for the sins that he knew would not be taken care of by the cross because people wouldn't accept propitiation of Christ okay. on the cross. So those sins would be the eternal. Because if he, if he had wrath left, he would have to have wrath left to put the wrath of the unforgiven sins uh, for eternity. If he poured them all out on the cross, logically, I don't know if that's... So, scripture, I never thought about it. So, what Bob's saying is, for those who are saved, he bore the equal weight of the wrath that they should have bore, Christ bore. Is that, is that what you said? Well, what I was thinking was, those of us that accept Christ as Savior, our sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the wrath that was poured out on the cross for those sins. Yes. God knew then that we were going to commit them. The ones that, the, those that don't accept Christ as Savior and forgiveness of sin, are the sins that the the father still has wrath for 
which would be the eternal wrath, what you said earlier. So what I'm going to say here, I'm, I'm going to turn this into logical an, guess. I'm going to turn this into an equation, Bob. Is that the wrath equals the sins of the saved? Okay, that's I think yes. what Bob's saying. Yes. So give me a different answer. So Bill said, Bill's giving me something else. Bill, give me a different answer. Is propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. First, John. Two, two. All right, let's deal with that. Can you read that again, Bill? And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What do we do with that? Did you catch that? Sorry? So that would be the same thing. So it sounds like, first reading, first blush, that he's died for the sins of those who are saved and not saved, because the verse says that he, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Any other thoughts? John 3.16 reflects that too. For God so loved the... It's not actually referring to the whole world. Okay. So what is it referring to? It's made available to all nations or all who believe. It's made available to all who would made available. So the wrath then is how much wrath is poured out? Enough to cover those that would be called by God and saved. Yes. So there are times when the word world there in the Greek is refers to the whole world. Like John uses it that way. There are times when he does that. But so if the wrath is poured out on the cross, then the eternal wrath for those who aren't saved weren't wasn't poured out on the cross then if it still existed for eternity. Yeah, it, it does kind of go against that. Uh oh, conundrum, conundrum. <laughs> so let's work through it a little bit. So <clears throat> I'm going to jump off what you're saying. There goes my lid. Uh, so here in when it comes to the concept of world, if you read commentaries, they would say just within John's literature, just within John, First John, Second John, Third John, Revelation, that there's up to ten different uses of the word world. Now, I can't find 10, so I'm going to say 7 to 10 just to stay safe. Okay, but there's a lot of different ways that the word world is used. And in there, we see two references, us and we see world. Okay, whenever you try to figure out what a word means, the word has meaning within a sentence, and a sentence has meaning within the paragraph and the section. So you have to think through what's going on before and after to come to your right conclusion, especially when a word has more than one usage. It's the context that will help you know which usage is being used. So let's work through 1 John. Okay, so when you have 1 John 1, 8 and 1 John 1, 10, it talks about the fact that we still have sin in our life. Sorry, I can't see you. Um, we still have sin in our life. And he's trying to help them work through what do we do with the sin in our life. Now. What does 2-1 say? Bill, do you happen to still have 2-1 open? Uh, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus yeah. Christ the righteous. So he's trying to work through the issue of what do you do with the sin in your life? And part of the answer is, is we have Jesus who is our advocate. 
And then right after that in verse 2, and these are parallel statements, like in my NAS it says, and he's the propitiation for our sins. In the NIV it's two different sentences. But either way is a parallel statement trying to help them understand what happens to their sin as a believer. One, we have Jesus as our advocate. Two is he is our propitiation. So those two things are the response, are the answer to the sin that we have in our life. And if we understand that, then chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, has weight. It has meaning because the one we're confessing to advocates for us and he's bore the wrath of God for us. So then what happens? We start understanding what it really means to walk in the light as he is in the light. And the Bible says that in 1.5, God is light. Okay? Verses 3 and 4 talks about the fact that we have this mutual fellowship and mutual joy together as we walk in the light. But what do we do with this sin? Well, we go to our advocate and we realize that he's our propitiation and then we continue to walk in the light. This is a beautiful circle here of logic that John takes us through. In verse 3, it's talking about believers. In verse 4, it's talking about believers. In chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, it's only referencing and talking about believers. So all of a sudden, chapter 2, verse 2, when it references the world, we just have to recognize at no point has he referenced anyone who is not a believer before or immediately after that context. So it's hard to all of a sudden read that meaning of world into that, knowing that the verses before and after are not discussing that at all. Now, let's go with this. How about, can someone look up John 17, 9 for me? And then read that for me. What does John 17, 9 say? The chapter of John 17 is Jesus praying. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. So who is he praying for? Read it again, Bob. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So Jesus is praying for who there? Those whom you've given me. Christians. Who is he? Like he says it. I am not praying for certain people. Who is he not praying for? The world. So Jesus here, as an advocate in John 17, 9, is saying clearly, I'm praying for those who are saved. I'm not praying for the world. That does give us a little context when he says the word world here, what that might mean. Does anybody here know that that old Baptist theologian, John Gill? Good guy, John Gill. Anyways, if you ever get bored and you want to read a big, huge book, John Gill has a good one. Um, his, his point of view on this, I'm not going to say this is the right point of view, but he would say us refers to Jewish believers because John's speaking to people who are mainly Jewish who have come to know Christ, and the world there is speaking to Gentile believers. Okay, again, that isn't necessarily what it means, but his point of view is that the world there is referencing Gentile believers. Another way of thinking about that would be, sorry, this is getting small, uh, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. That's the section which I'm sure you're all familiar with where it talks about Jesus is going to basically purchase for himself men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It talks about out of every tribe, out of every people group, 
on the entire planet, in the whole world, there are some that he is going to save and call his own. So even here, we see that out of the world, out of every people group, he's calling some to be saved. He'll call his own. He's purchasing them with his blood. Remember that? And John wrote Revelation. Uh, he's purchasing out of the world, from every people group, those who he's making a propitiation for. So again, there's another way of thinking that, <clears throat> that the concept of world there is for those who in the world will believe, not just every one single person in the world. To finalize this, I'm going to kind of go back to what Bob said. Can you look up John? Someone look up John 3, 36 for me. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So for someone who does not believe in Jesus, where is that wrath going? Did you catch it? On them. On them. So it's not going on Jesus. It's going on them. So wrath goes in one of two directions. It either goes on Jesus or wrath goes on those who have rejected Jesus. God, so somebody lies to their spouse. Pick any sin in the world. Jesus doesn't die on the cross for that lie, and then God also punishes that person for that same lie. There's no double jeopardy thing here. When God is satisfied, he's satisfied. When he's satisfied for a sin, he's satisfied. So, so those who have rejected Christ will bear God's wrath. Jesus didn't bear that wrath. If, he, if Jesus had bore that wrath, then there would be no wrath left to apportion out to anyone. It would be gone. So I'm going to lean, again, I'm just, this is just a leaning, I'm going to lean towards how much wrath? Enough to save those who will be saved. Now, who are those people? <laughs> I'm just going to intro this topic, and we're not going to go down the path very far. But it's either those that God has picked, or it's those who have chose God, depending on how you like, depending on whether you like vanilla milk or you like chocolate milk. Um, <clears throat> so, because God knew ahead of time who would, who would be saved. So whether it's your point of view that God picked who was going to be saved, or it's your point of view that God could foresee who would choose him, either way, it wasn't a surprise. God knows the population of heaven and who's going to be there right now. There's celebration when someone comes to know Christ, but God isn't surprised by it. Okay, He knows all things, past, present, and future. So either way, He dies, and the wrath that He dies, that He that pours out on Christ, appeases the Father for those who are saved. Is it verse two kind of highlighting back to God's covenant with Abraham as well? make him the father of many nations and from what I take that verse 2 just means all kinds of people John so if, if that verse came out of Galatians Paul does that a lot John in 1st John doesn't do that much so if contextually we saw John referencing back that way quite a bit I would say possibly but since we don't then it's hard to say maybe maybe not 
but like in Galatians, you see him referencing back to the promises of Abraham and the promise of the seed and all that stuff over and over again. So in that context, yeah, very likely. But in this context, before and after, there isn't a reference to that. So, so I would lean in the direction of the world is referencing those who out of the world would believe. Because it can't be everyone in the world or the whole world would be saved. Okay, because we know that that's inconsistent with everything else in Scripture. So when we're trying to understand Scripture, we take clear passages, passages to help us understand unclear passages, which is what we just did here. Okay, clear as mud. Everyone got that? Okay, so good job hanging with that. That's not an easy conversation, and it's not the most important conversation. Like if you walk out of here and you're like. I don't really even know what he was talking about. That's totally fine. As long as you get substitutionary atonement that we already talked about, it's okay if this didn't make sense or if you don't even care. Okay? I think this is really fun. It would be important, though, if I thought that, as he said, the reference was to the entire world, then why, why not just go out by a picture of margaritas and just to enjoy yeah. You're right. Then your job's done. Yeah. So, again, I would argue that 1 John 2 2 isn't saying that, and no passage anywhere says that. So it seems like it needs to fall in line with the consistency of every other clear passage meaning that. And there's room for that because the way the word world is used, there's room for this interpretation. We're not making something up, the word is used this way. So we're not reading something new into it like it has been used that way. So it's, it, it's not a crazy notion that that's what John's doing right here. Because John's the one that uses the word world in so many different ways in all the different things that he writes. We're going to move on. Good job. Here we go. So bottom of page 26. Understanding the work of the cross, understanding everything that we talked about, about the guilty party, the offended party, the fact that he gave us Jesus a great act of mercy to stay in our place when he didn't need to, didn't have to, should radically change our perspective. It should radically ch change our level of passion when it comes to the Lord. Like, my hope for you is when you sing about the cross that you well up a little bit. Like, it affects you mentally, emotionally. Like, just that there's a, there's a sense of awe of what you're singing about because it is an amazing thing. Like, it's, it's a love that is beyond human capacity or comprehension. So that should land on you with some weight when you think about it, when you sing about it, when you hear it preached, when you read about it in God's word. It should hit you and also should affect the actions of the Christian. Like we live our life in response to the cross, don't we? If he's, able to, if he's willing to do all that for me and he loves me that much, oh, I'd love to obey him. Oh, I want to do what glorifies him. I want to bring attention to him. I want people to know about him. That's an appropriate response to understanding this incredible love that God has for us, showed and displayed to us in the cross in Christ. Uh, this quote at the bottom kind of says the same thing. To reflect upon the love of the crucified is to strengthen the sense of being loved. The love of the crucified, that love which he is, turns the word redemption, possession, servitude into the inmost voice of infinite affection. In other words, when I hear that I am the Lord's and I realize how much he loves me, like that moves me. When I hear that he's redeemed me, this one who loves me this much, like it moves me. When he says, I've called you into a life of doing things to honor me, 
I'm like, let's do it. Like it moves me to recognize what Christ has done for me. Page 27. I think we're going to bust down a little bit farther. So again, when it comes to the results of the cross, this aspect here, this will be discussed in the salvation study. We're going to go ahead and head to the offices of Christ. Uh, this is a topic that I think some people I've talked to said they haven't heard of this before, and some say that they have. So I'm not sure where you land on this, but Louis Burkhoff says it better than I can. It says, it has been customary to speak of three offices in connection with the work of Christ, namely the prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly office. Hence, it was necessary that Christ, as our mediator, should be prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he represents God with man. As priest, he represents man in the presence of God. And as king, he exercises dominion and restores the original dominion of man. He's a prophet. He speaks from God to man. He's a priest. He speaks from man to God. And he rules over all. All those things are true of Christ. From the moment he came to earth, all those things are true of Christ. Let's first talk about Jesus as prophet. He speaks for God to man. Luke 13:33. Jesus just calls himself a prophet. I am a prophet. In case you missed it, I am a prophet. Like Jesus just says it straight up. Um, Deuteronomy talks about a coming Messiah who will be a prophet. John 8:47. He says, "The things I say to you are the things I hear my Father saying. The things I do are the things I see my Father doing." He is speaking the words of God to us. So knowing that he's speaking the words of God to us, you want to pay attention to everything that he says. You want to pay attention to the way that he says things. There has never been anyone on planet Earth who has mastered the English language and teaching and communicating like Jesus. He created language. He created your human mind. He knows how to take human language to express an idea that sticks in your head and sticks in your heart. Jesus was the master teacher. He used many methods of communication. Jesus' words are an unending well of beauty and mastery over language, communication, and the articulation of heavenly truths given to sinful man. So, with grace and truth, because the Bible says that. It says that Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth, John 1.14, John 1.17. That's how he's described. And as you watch him interact, sometimes he gives you a strong portion of grace and a little bit of truth. Then he runs up against some Pharisees, and you get a lot of truth and just a tiny bit of grace. But Jesus is always balancing grace and truth in his interactions. As, his, as he's addressing followers, haters, seekers, sick and broken. So you'll watch it. He's interacting. He interacts in different ways with different types of people based upon their heart condition. Okay? You and I don't have the ability to always see everyone's heart condition, but as you're talking to someone, you have to be thinking through, does this person need some truth or does this person need some grace? Or how much of each do I need to blend into the conversation? Because if you watch Jesus, usually when he's up with someone who's hurting and really wants to figure it out, tons of grace followed up by truth. When he's with someone who's arrogant and basically poking Jesus, saying, you're wrong, what does he lead with? A bit of truth, right? How about, you're a brood of vipers. There's some truth. You're a whitewashed tomb. Dead man's bones inside of you. Like, I mean, that's, that's truth. He starts there. Um, so I'm not suggesting that you use that tactic. There's probably no one you're going to run into where that's appropriate. But like Jesus knows the situation. He knows what he needs to say. So here are some examples of how Jesus teaches. Uh, one example is overstatement. 
Um, so overstatement. One means, one means by which Jesus sought to capture the attention of his listeners was that of overstating a truth in such a way that results in a bit of an exaggeration, forcefully bringing home a point that he's trying to make. So he uses overstatement lots. In fact, it was something that people did all the time in that day. Overstatement was a way that people spoke. So when Jesus was speaking, there was no one there like with their iPhone going, that's a good one. Like there was no one doing that. No one's like keeping track. No one pulls their quill out in a parchment and like, well, that's excellent. And like, no one's writing down what he's saying. So he has to say things in a way that just sticks with you. That when you walk away, you can go back and talk to your kids and you're saying the same things to your kids that Jesus said to you. Perhaps you're saying the same thing to your kids that your kids then say to their kids 30 years later because it was that profound, that easy to remember and to pass on. So overstatement is one of those things that he does. So for example, Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your eye offends you, or if your eye is sinful against the Lord, if your hand causes you to sin, pluck that thing out, lob that thing off, right? Like that's what he says. That's Jesus using overstatement. Every one of you at some point have sinned with an eyeball. Every one of you probably sinned with one of your hands, but all of you have two hands and two eyeballs. Like that overstatement is obvious, but it's not always super obvious. He also says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge lest you be judged. Have you ever heard that one quoted? It's like America's favorite verse. They don't know anything else, but they know that one. But if you just go five verses later, Jesus is really clear. You've got to judge your surroundings. You've got to judge the people around you. You've got to be able to tell good fruit from bad fruit because good fruit comes from a good tree, a good person, and bad fruit comes from a bad tree, a not so great person. So is he contradicting himself? Did Jesus within 35 seconds forget what he had just said? No, he's giving overstatement. Like his do not judge is an overstatement and then he couches it with context. With this is how you do it appropriately. Okay, so like that's an overstatement. Um, <laughs> Matthew 5, 38 through 42. So he talks about, you know, if someone's cold, you know, you give them your, your cloak, and if they're still cold, give them your tunic. Well, that's all they wore, by the way. So like if, he's, if you're giving them all these things and it's cold outside, you've got a bunch of naked believers, okay, running around, and that, there's a lot of things that don't get fixed and some new problems that arise from that, right? So, so in that statement, there's a little bit of overstatement there. Like, yeah, you want to help somebody out, but no, you shouldn't get naked. So there's, so, but they understood that when they heard that. That was a way to remember it. Like you remember it, okay? That'd be like if I said to you, oh, they're cold, give them your shirt, give them your shorts, whatever you got underneath, hand it over. You'd be like, I think he just said, you're gonna remember that, all right? That's what Jesus did there. So you have overstatement, which is like a little, a little more than like, it's, it's exaggerated truth, but then you also have hyperbolic statements, which are even farther out here. And he uses those as well. So a hyperbolic speech is, grossly exaggerated speech used to make an unforgettable point. So one example would be is Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. If you think everything in scripture has to be taken literally, this just got really tough for you, okay? No one has ever swallowed a camel, okay? It just hasn't. If you see someone trying to argue, well, it just means they had to cook the camel, eat it piece by piece, and that's what the Pharisees did, then you're missing the whole point of what Jesus was doing. Like, Jesus' point is that you walked away realizing that 
I'm making a foolish choice. What he's saying is that I'm focusing on the little things, I'm missing the big things. Like that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. And if you miss that, you miss the whole point. So you have to know and understand when he's being literal and when he's being figurative or he's overstating or he's grossly exaggerating so that you catch the point. Jesus does that. He also has puns where he makes plays on words using that same verse you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. In Aramaic, which is the language he would have been speaking, the word for gnat is galma. The word for camel is gamla. Did you catch that? So Jesus, in this example, made a pun. What he said was, you strain out the galma, but you turn around and you swallow the gamla. Like that, that's like, see you later, alligator. Like you say that once and your kid will always remember that because it just sticks because it kind of rhymes and the words connect together. That's what he just did with them. Okay, so like they'll never ever forget that because he uses hyperbolic speech and throws a pun in in the middle of it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, <clears throat> he does that in other ways. Matthew four nineteen, where he talks about, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." Now, again, like you know that, and they knew. They knew right away that it doesn't mean that they're going to take a hook, put a worm on it, and when somebody walks by, they're going to be like, I'm going to get you. I mean, like, they all know that that's not what's happening, right? He's creating a picture. He's play, it's a play on words. In the same way that you fish for fish, you're going to kind of in the same way be fishing for men, but not with a hook, not with a rod. So they understood that. They would have understood that. So you can't force literal interpretation where it's not intended. And here it's not intended. It's a play on words. Simile and metaphor, you guys remember these? Remember these? You probably had to write a bunch of these when you were in high school or junior high. So similes use like or as, metaphors don't. But in both situations, there's a contrast or a comparison. There's usually a comparison taking place in two categories which oftentimes don't go together. So an example of a simile is he says, see, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. Sheep and wolves. You're not actually sheep, they're not actually wolves, but it's like that. Is similar to that. There's some similarities between you being like sheep and them being like wolves. If you're not careful, they're going to eat your hide. Okay, so that's the point he's trying to get across there. Metaphors. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. If it was midnight and we were all sitting in this room and I turned that light out, it would be dark in here. Like there's no light emanating from you. So when he says you are the light of the world, it doesn't mean that you get shiny when it gets dark outside. It doesn't mean that. If I came over and licked your head, which I'm not going to do, there's a good chance you don't taste like salt. Maybe some of you sweaty people do. But some of, I mean, we're just going to taste nasty. So the point there isn't actual salt and actual light. Okay, so that's not his point. So don't see it that way. See it as there's characteristics of light that are similar to us. We're shining for something that matters. We're shedding light on something that otherwise would be dark. Okay, same idea with salt. 29. Proverb. So Jesus uses a style of teaching from Middle Eastern wisdom tradition. Um, so a proverb is a terse, pithy saying that contains a striking manner and a memorable statement. This is usually a single, simple statement, like the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Like you just, you just remember these. Or like, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Like when I read that, you're like, oh, I remember that. Anybody who's ever read that, like it just kind of sticks. Like you've ever read it, like even just once, and then I say it, you're going to go, oh, I know that. But if I quoted something out of First Chronicles, you'd be like, oh, 
I don't remember that. Even if you've read it, you probably don't remember it. So because these saints show up in, in secular... Uh, yes, they show up all over the place. Yeah. Like for that one, for example. So what, but that was his point of using it, is that it's short and it's catchy and it communicates something that's profound in a very limited number of words. It's beautiful, it's artistic, and it's wise, and it's amazing way of speaking. So Jesus knew how to take huge things and say them in simple ways. And sometimes he would take simple things and say them in really large ways. He would do both depending on how he wanted the audience to remember and to walk away with the information that he was trying to communicate. So riddle. Okay, riddle's another thing that he would do, um, which I think is interesting. I mean, I think of Rumpelstiltskin. Like, there's some different, like, fairy tales where there's riddles involved, and Jesus actually uses riddle. So there's one point where he's standing there in front of the temple, like the physical temple, the huge physical temple, and he says, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Remember people's response? They're like, what is he on? Like, Something is not connecting. Jesus is making no sense. What he's saying is impossible. But it's a riddle. He wasn't actually referencing the temple in front of him, even though he was there. Like he was in a, he was in a, in a place where they would have assumed he was talking about the physical temple. But he wasn't. It was an actual riddle. It didn't make sense until, actually, until after he rose from the dead. Then after he rose from the dead, they were like, that's what he was talking about. That's what he meant when he said that it would be remade without hands, that he would remake the temple. He was talking about his body himself. But that riddle, it was memorable and almost seemed crazy, but there, then there's a future aha moment that takes place with that riddle. Isn't that amazing? And, he, and he's throwing this all together, by the way. He'll be like, hyperbolic statement, proverb, parable, riddle. I mean, he's doing it like all back and forth. Like if you just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, like it's all over the place. So it makes it amazing and memorable, but also makes it really hard to study and teach. Because you have to try to figure out, oh, what is he doing here? How would the audience have understood it? Because sometimes we, looking back on what he said, is different than those who are standing in his presence hearing it at the moment. We have to take both into account. Like parables. 35% of his teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were parables. One out of every three words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are words that were located in a parable. Parables are really interesting. Parables are like a story where he takes like common things and puts them into the story, things that everyone's familiar with, but then he kind of mixes them up and puts them in places that don't make sense. Like he takes common things and then creates a story where something profound happens with common things. And then at the end, there's a punchline. At the end, there's something memorable that you didn't expect to happen. All of a sudden, boom, there it happens. It's a type of punchline that you'll never forget. If you totally understand what he's saying and the way he's moving things together, you walk away being amazed. Especially if the punchline was designed and intended for someone in your place, dealing with what you're dealing with. Okay, that's how parables work. Um, they're, they're amazing. Have you ever had someone tell a joke and they forget the punchline? That is not amazing, right? Like, that is not amazing. Like, you don't even remember what they were talking about. Like, the whole joke just disappears from your mind. Because without the punchline, it has no purpose, meaning, or flow, or endpoint. So it's like garbage. But in Jesus' parables, they always have amazing punchlines. He's intentional, and he's brilliant. Priests. 
So priests speak for man to God, and they sort of mediate in the Old Testament between man and God. Priests were responsible of, of doing the sacrifices. Like they were the ones who would actually kill the animals and shed the blood so that man could speak to and meet with God. So we see Leviticus priests, priests doing this in Leviticus. Um, in 1 Samuel 2.35, God talks about that there's a day when he's going to raise up a priest who thinks like him, whose heart is the same as his heart, referring to Jesus. Jesus himself says in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So all the other priests would show up and kill an animal to make an atonement, to create a way where God can meet with man. Jesus shows up to intercede, to mediate, and he puts himself on the altar, and he dies to create a permanent, once-for-all pathway, giving us access to the Father himself. Uh, on the next page, 30, he talks about that. John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is called our Passover in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he's called our high priest in Hebrews. We see multiple times where he's praying for us. He lived a life of prayer. As the high priest, he's sinless. He offers a one-time sacrifice. He offered, it, he offered it himself, and he offered it once for all. And now he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us as needed at all times. Okay, So he is, he's the high priest that we've always dreamed of. He's the high priest. He's the only high priest who could actually fix our situation. He was the only one that could present a permanent solution. And he did. And the cost was on him. So he offered it knowing that the cost would be on him. He's also the king. He rules and he reigns. Genesis 49 says that a king will come in the line of Judah. Jesus comes in the line of Judah. 2 Samuel and Matthew talks about the fact that Jesus' throne is going to be established forever, and he's coming out of the line of David. Psalm 2.6 is talking about Jesus, talks about how he suffers, but also talks about the fact that he will be installed and enthroned as king. On the last page, Matthew 2.2 says he's king of the Jews, and then... 1 Timothy 6 and Revelation 17, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. When Jesus came to earth, he established his kingdom. The Bible says that when he showed up, okay, he was already introducing and proclaiming that the kingdom is here. He said that. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe, for the kingdom is here. It's not something that's coming. It's something that is right now here. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as he sends us out to make disciples, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's an expression of dominion. That's an expression of rulership. He is presently, right now, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Okay? He rules. Here's an interesting thing that we have to think through. This is like an application to the offices of Jesus. So, often, so Jesus is the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd of the church. He is the prophet, priest, and king over his church. And when Jesus raises up leaders to lead for him in the church, they need to reflect 
some of these qualities that he has. So a pastor or an elder or a leader within a church needs to be someone who prays on behalf of the people. They should have priestly qualities in their life. If they don't mediate between man and God on the behalf of those who are hurting and those who need prayer, they may be someone who shouldn't be a leader within a church. They also need to be a prophet. In that, they need to speak God's word to God's people. They have to have some ability to teach. In fact, when the Bible speaks of deacons who are servants, the Bible does not say they're required to be able to teach. But when the Bible speaks of elders and pastors, there's an expectation that they're able to teach. Why? Because they're called to function in this prophetic role. When I say prophetic, it doesn't mean introducing new things or talking about the future. It just means taking God's word and speaking it and teaching it to God's people. And also, they're called to have some level of leadership. They're guiding, they're shepherding the flock of God. So they have some leadership qualities, some kingly qualities. So as we're thinking through the people who are leading our church, like we always need to be having those things in mind. Are they priestly? Are they prophetic? Are they kingly in the way they lead and move God's people forward? All those things are important. You see a king out in front. You see a priest out in front of the flock. You see a priest in the back of the flock making sure everyone's being taken care of. And the prophet's saying, this way. We're going this way. Okay? So you need all those things happening all the time. So these are just some of the qualities that we would hope that people would have who are seeking to be pastors and seeking to be elders within a church. Do you guys have any questions? We ran over a little bit, but if anybody has any questions, I'll, I'll take one or two. Oh, yeah. And he's not reading off of a prompter. Right. So, yeah, so um, he said, wouldn't it be evidence of the Holy Spirit's work to see Jesus communicate the way, the way that he does? I would say absolutely. Yeah. Good thought. There's, it's kind of trippy, though, for people who are uneducated or haven't been exposed hmm. to you know, any form of literature to know what a simile is. But I guess that's up to the teacher. Yeah. Did you say trippy? I love that. It is a little trippy. It's a little trippy for people who don't know how the English language works. And I agree. Good description. So in the same way, this is just something to notice, in the same way that Jesus uses all those different forms of speech, when we go back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, when we go forward to Revelation, he uses those types of speech in those books. Like he's using those types of linguistic ways of putting words together to say things and to do things. So we have to be careful not to force literal interpretations when perhaps it's not a literal intention to what was said. So we just always have to be careful of those things. Okay, so we have to be slow to interpret. How, how would you suggest ascertaining like, whether it be taken or not? How do we ascertain whether or not it should be taken literally? Um, that is a longer discussion, but it's a good discussion. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about doing 2020 is actually doing a longer week-by-week -week study on how to interpret God's Word where we work through the different types of genres. First, you have to acknowledge that there's different genres. If you read a poetry book, like it's an epistle of Paul, you're dead in the water. That's not going to work. Okay? But when you go to an like, an, like Revelation, that's apocalyptic, well, 
there are some rules, because there are actually multiple apocalypses that were written during the time of when Revelation was written. So there's certain ways that they tended to do things back then. So that was an actual genre of literature, even though we don't see much of it today. So it's good to know some of that as we read it, because in the same way that letters were written a certain way, in the same way that Gospels were written a certain way back in the day, and they followed some of that form and function, they probably followed some of that form and function with Revelation. But the Holy Spirit actually gave those words where he didn't give the words to the other authors. So it takes some work. You have to have the right books on your shelf. I'm going to close with some prayer. Good questions. Father, I thank you that you brought these people here tonight. I pray that you would grow them, grow us through the summer. Uh, May our time together uh, be a time to also continue to grow in relationships with each other. Build your church. Help us to be people who make disciples. Allow us to be people who live as everyday missionaries in our life and talk about how awesome you truly are, Jesus. The fact that you would stand in our stead, not out of obligation, but out of choice, should blow us away. May we be be people who worship you and obey you because we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all for coming.